Heavenly Father, thank you for another Sunday to gather together to open up the Scriptures and to seek wisdom and understanding. And Lord, that you might give us grace to be obedient, to live according to what you teach us in the Bible. And we thank you, Lord, for the flock that's scattered around the world that listens as well. We pray for their well-being, that you can continue to help them to gather together with other Christians who love the truth and to fellowship together. And Lord, we commit this Sunday to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we are in the section of Second Corinthians where Paul is defending himself to his critics. And in so doing, he has told us that he's ready and willing to pull down strongholds and speculations in every argument, and he's talking about ideas and arguments, as we've pointed out, not spirits and demons, because he uses this term logizomai several times that uh, has to do with reasoning, reasonings and speculations. So that's the issue. Now we're in verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 10. Let me look back at 8 here and in the middle of a sentence. Verse 8 said, For even if I boast, kakaomai is the word boast, even if I boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave me for building you up and not destroying you, I will not be put to shame, for I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. So there's a series of letters. We have two of them. There were at least... In 1 Corinthians 5 9, 1 Corinthians 5 9, he talks about a previous letter. And then we have 1 Corinthians. And then in 2 Corinthians 2 4 and 7, 8, and 9, we have the mention of the severe letter. And then we have what well, we're studying, 2 Corinthians. So there was at least four letters. We only have two of them. And the difficulty of interpreting 1 and 2 Corinthians is that the interpreter is always making guesses about the content of their previous discussion. And they asked Paul questions. Paul had told them things. So they were privy to things we don't know. So then when we read 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians, there's a discussion that we're kind of listening in on, and we have to guess about what the issues were. And, for example, last Sunday when I preached on 1 Corinthians 11, the judgment verses on communion, I drew a whole lot of material from all the way through the Bible to show a pattern and then went in there and interpreted it. And I think it's the first time I've ever been confident enough on what Paul meant in 1 Corinthians 11 to actually make a public stand on it. And... What helped me do it was all this other material in the Bible. So that's what happens in Corinthians. Now, here he's talking about his letters. And so he said, I do not wish to seem I would terrify you by my letters. That has to be a reference to the severe letter that he had written prior to 2 Corinthians. And the severe letter, he demanded repentance and what's going on now is that in the end of 2 Corinthians, he is hoping that repentance, further repentance will happen before he actually gets there so he doesn't have to deal with them face to face. Now, what they're doing then, his critics, whoever they may have been, are saying, well, Paul's really bold uh, when he writes these letters to us, but when he's here, he's you know, not so impressive. Okay? Uh, he's uh, a lion from afar and a pussycat in person. <laughs> That's one of the uh, criticisms that, that is happening here. And now he's actually quoting them. Now we can know in verse 10 what they were actually saying. He quotes his critics. Actually, it's a singular, by the way, even though they... It says, for they say... Let me, read it and talk about the translation. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, 
but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. Contemptible. But the, um, there's a singular. Does anybody actually translate it singular for he says? Yeah, for he says. That's literally what it is. Now, the question is whether um, Paul is taking an attitude that a number of people have and personifying it into the singular, or there's one particular critic that was sort of the spokesperson for the rest. We know there was more than one critic. But just to be accurate with the translation, there is a singular in the Greek. Present, active, indicative, third-person, singular. He says. His letters are weighty and strong, but that would be in his absence. But when he's present, this guy is not that um, impressive. Now, there's some translation issues, so let me quote some of those. I'm going to quote some scholars. I found some fascinating material as I was researching this in the last couple of weeks. I, I didn't teach last week. And one of the things that one of these guys provides here, and I'm going to quote some of it for you, is a discussion of rhetoric in the Roman Empire and what they considered necessary to be good at it and what some of the issues were. And even there's they, they had writers who were sarcastic about it as well. They're pretty interesting. Lucian was one of the guys. Okay, so we're going to look at what rhetoric was supposed to be all about and why they look at Paul and seem to see less than what they expect. Now, I was going to quote Barnett here. When present, that is in person, they say he is unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. What he should be when present, weighty and forceful, is only when absent. What he should be when absent, physically unimpressive, with speech of no account, which by definition, as it were, a letter is, he is when present. At both points, he is the opposite of what they expect him to be. In their eyes, he's a total failure, a man of flesh, verse 2. Paul's a man of flesh. He's an utter failure. They're not impressed with him. This is just some critics, not everybody in Corinth. Now, as we piece this together, we can see probably what's going on. Now, if you remember at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, some people there were saying, I am of Apollos. Okay? So, we know from Acts that Apollos was indeed a very eloquent uh, speaker. Let's go to Acts 18, and we're going to read 1 through 9. Acts 18, 1 through 9. Try to piece together what was going on here. It says here, After these things he, that is Paul, left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them. I think that that command to leave Rome happened in 49 A.D. Am I remembering right? That would, date, that would give us a good way to date what's happening here, Paul's first trip to Corinth. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogues every Sabbath, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. And when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garment and he said to them, Your blood be on your own heads, I am clean. From now on I shall go to the Gentiles. Then he departed from there and went to the house of a certain man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God whose house was next to the synagogue. And Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul in, a night, in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. 
Now, remember Paul said in 1 Corinthians that he came to them in fear and trembling? Okay? He, he had uh, gotten a very negative reception in Athens from the philosophers, and he needed to be encouraged, and so he was. And in the encouragement, he was told not to be afraid. Now, if we skip down to verse 24, it says in, in Acts 18, Now a certain Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man. Now, Alexandria was the seat of Hellenistic Jewish scholarship. It was the place where the Jewish scholars translated the scriptures into Greek, the Septuagint. It was known for its high level of scholarship. And so we believe that this Apollos was a product of that. And it says he was mighty in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the, in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately to things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. When he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue, and he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained him the way of the Lord more accurately. And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him, and when he had arrived, he, he, he helped greatly those who had believed through grace. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. And it came about, verse chapter 19, that while Paulus was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper country, came to Ephesus. So Apollos arrived in Corinth after Paul. All right? And Apollos came... Eloquent, mighty in the scriptures, refuted the, the critics, refuted the Jews that withstood the gospel. And then we read in 1 Corinthians that some were saying, I am of Apollos. And so Paul said in 1 Corinthians, I did not come to you with persuasive words of man's wisdom. He came preaching the cross. But see, they, were, um, they loved rhetoric. They loved eloquence. And they loved a person who could give a rousing speech and uh, string together words uh, from the Greek in a beautiful, powerful way. And so Apollos was such a person. And so it's not hard to see that there may have been an issue. Now, if we turn to 1 Corinthians, trying to fill in the blanks here, let's, let's do a little investigating. Turn to 1 Corinthians, and we go to chapter 3 in verse 5. In verse 6, 1 Corinthians 3, 5, and 6, Paul says, For what then is Apollos? And what is Paul? So the fact he brings this up is a pretty good clue that there was some attempt to set one off against the other or to make a comparison from one to the other. What is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now, in chapter 4 and verse 6 of 1 Corinthians, it says, Now these things, brethren, I figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes that in us you might learn not to exceed what is written in order that no one of you might become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. So I don't think it's even a, a bit far-fetched to, to say that they were taking sides based on eloquence and making a negative comparison to Paul. Now, there's no evidence that Apollos himself was the problem. This all happened probably after they were both gone. And there were some false teachers that were coming in and trying to make matters worse. And we don't know. There's even a theory that Peter at some point came to Corinth, but there's no proof that that actually happened. But a lot of people think that it did. Because he did talk about some who said, I'm of Peter. But we don't, we can't, Acts never recounts anything about Peter going to Corinth. Okay? Now, I have a bunch of material 
about how this sort of thing worked in the world that they lived in, in Achaia, and elsewhere across the Roman Empire. This is from Dr. Garland. Paul's quotation of what persons are saying about his letters attests that even his opponents recognizes that the letters, that is, have rhetorical power. What they called into question was his physical presence in public oratory. He seemed to make an unfavorable impression as the one who was physically unpresentable, less than articulate. An unpolished and halting oral performance would have given the impression that he was uneducated. Either some of the church would have liked him to be more like the other golden-tongued orators who were lionized in Corinth so that their association with him would boost their own prestige, or his opponents fastened onto the weakness to advance their bid for influence over the church. Both, perhaps both are true. Paul never tries to refute their claim that he wasn't a great public speaker. He accepts their criticism. But his defense is that he is there for the preaching of the cross. And the cross is the power of God, not elegant rhetoric. The cross is the power of God. And that it's inappropriate to compare one preacher against the other based on that sort of a criteria. Now, is it a truly substantive thing? Is, is there anything to rhetorical skill? Yes. God gives people different giftings. And some people are great at giving a speech. And some people can captivate an audience. And it's not a bad thing, so unless what they're captivating them with isn't the message of the cross. Okay? And so somebody who's very good at speaking and has the true message will just have a bigger audience. But, it, but they should not thereby be considered of some greater category than the guy with a little audience with the same message. Does that make sense? But what's really ugly is somebody who's really, really good in teaching heresy. I'll tell you who's in that category in my mind. Rob Bell. Rob Bell is a great communicator, but he's, he's filling people's minds with poison. But he's doing a nice job of it. <laughs> okay. I'm just thinking that a good illustration of that is the John... The Apostle John's writings and the Gospels in First mm-hmm. and Second and Third John are very poor Greek, are mm-hmm. very elementary. It's, uh, it's grade school kind of Greek, mm-hmm. and he's communicating the words of God. Look how powerful and it is. And then you have Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, mm-hmm. that has some of the best Greek known, and he's communicating the message of God. And if you just looked at which Greek was better and said, I'm going to look at the good Greek, you're going to miss the entire gospel. Yeah, you would forget John and only study Hebrews. I'm having, uh, by the way, people have asked about this. Dick, Dick and I are working very hard to get Hebrews series on radio. And we've got six messages recorded so far. They will begin to be broadcast simultaneously, because we, we've worked it now, so CIC. CACministry.org and OnePlace.com are going to have the same broadcast at the same time. Okay? The one on the CIC site is podcast, if that means something to you. I don't know what that means, but I think I do. It's a good thing. I guess that's what I hear. I don't know about that. Now, the broadcast will begin January 5th, if that's a Monday. I think it is. Monday, January 5th will be Hebrews 1.1. And we are pulling out all the stops. And what I mean by that is that we're not giving a survey course. We're digging in to every pertinent issue. And I'm bringing a lot of material from scholarly sources using our Lagos Bible software, digging out the meaning of the Greek, and then making application. Because I believe that Hebrews is a book that every Christian should intimately know. It's a book that was going to save us from apostasy if we're willing to listen to it. Okay, Gretchen. Yeah, this controversy now of the president-elect Obama asking Rick Warren to give the, the invocation. Oh, yeah. And, and, you know, all this controversy around that, that isn't about 
truth to the gospel so much as just power and controversies. So that, oratory. that, let's do that later. Yeah, there's oratory there, by the way. That shows you the power of oratory because both Obama and Warren are known to be able to hold a, a huge crowd spellbound by what they have to say. But as with anything like that, the content is going to be what makes the difference at the end of the day. Okay. Uh, the content is what's important. So I hope you get a chance to take advantage of that Hebrews. The, the, these guys that, that write these commentaries, they know languages. And they, right in their mind, know all of the Greek material that was written, not only the Septuagint, but Philo, the Pseudepigrapha, the Qumran, all of this stuff. These guys just know this stuff. And if you're going to be one of those persons, like William Lane, whose commentary we're using most extensively, that's all you've got to do. That's all you do. That's your life. A pastor can't do that because there wouldn't be time. You have to devote your entire life to just studying one thing. But that's what they do. So we have the privilege of these people, teachers God gave us in the church, being able to open up the door so we can understand this material. And so what Dick and I are doing is we're doing the heavy work of studying to get that material so we can bring it from them to you. That's what that's going to be all about. So this will not be your little what-does-it-mean-to-you type study. So are you delivering it in, the, in accordance with the eloquence of uh, Apollos or Paul? Well, I'll tell you what. I've got I to gotta confess here. I've got to be totally honest. The eloquence that comes across on the radio show is doctored by Cool Edit Pro. That's an audio editing program. And That's the one Apollos used? <laughs> yeah, you know, Apollos had it naturally. So, we're, so what, what we do now is to make it easier, every time one of us fumbles over a word, we stop, start the sentence over again. And then stop, start it over again. And then when you edit out all the fumbles, it sounds like we're good, we're really good, like these news people, aren't they? <laughs> we did three the other day, Jessica was editing, editing them, and she says, well, the first one went really quick. Well, you guys were good. The second one got really bad. And the third one, oh, man. <laughs> in fact, I knew the third one was, we had so much trouble. I said, Dick, we're not going to do a fourth today. So anyhow, the fact is, it's not bad. It's not a sin to be eloquent. But it doesn't make what you have to say true. That's the bottom line. It doesn't make what you have to say true because you say it well. Now, I love hearing a true preacher saying it well. I love that. And that's why people listen to John MacArthur. That's why he has a big audience, because he's capable of taking the truth of the Scripture and saying it well. And so we should appreciate that. But, you know, uh, eloquence without truth would probably be something like Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 13, a clanging, what did he call it? Clanging symbol. It's a gong. It's like... It's, a, it's, it's wasted. It's wasted. Okay, now back to their criticism of Paul's lack of oratory skill. I wanted to quote about some of these Greek people that talked about this, secular ones, to show the, the idea. There's this epi, uh, epictetus. Epictetus laid down the requirements for effective preaching in the public square. Here's his requirements. Quote, And such a man needs also a certain kind of body, since if a consumptive comes forward thin and pale, his testimony no longer carries the same weight. So don't be some scrawny guy. Okay? Quoting again, For he must not merely by exhibiting the qualities of his soul prove to the layman that it is possible without the help of the things which they admire to be a good and excellent man, but he also must show by the state of his body that his plain and simple life in the open air does not injure even his body. Look, he says, both I and my body are witness to the truth of my contention. That was the way of Diogenes, for he used to go about with a radiant complexion and would attract the attention of the common people by the very appearance of his body. 
But a cynic who excites pity is regarded as a beggar. Everybody turns away from him. Everybody takes offense at him. So now, now, now you not only have to be eloquent, you have to be good-looking. It's a tough, tough audience. Okay. Well, when you think about Paul, he'd been whipped, oh, I know. beaten, and stoned. <laughs> so the fact that he could stand at all was kind of amazing. <laughs> yeah. he Can you imagine what Paul must have looked like? He'd been whipped, what, three times? Yeah, he was shipwrecked and whipped and stoned. lashed. And that one time they stoned him and threw him out and thought he was dead. Well, you imagine getting stoned? What was he going to do? And so they're saying he's unimpressive. Well, he could not have looked like what these guys are talking about. Okay? There's no way. Now, the question is, do you want to hear the truth of the message of the cross that will save you from a guy like Paul, or do you want to have a Greek philosopher tickle your ears with human wisdom and impoverish your soul? I would rather hear the truth from anybody. Now, there are people who, in a sense, are like what they're saying here about Paul, whose letters in their presence are different. I have heard them. I have heard professors who, and actually had professors, who write brilliant books who can hardly hold the attention of a class for ten minutes. They, have, they just don't have it as far as oratory. They're just, it's just not there. They're dry, boring. One guy like that that I, that I know would just sit there at his desk looking down at, at, what, at his notes that we already had and talk. Don't even look up at the class. But he could write good books. Now, maybe somebody like that should just write books. I, I'm dumb. I don't know. I don't know what to say, but I, maybe that's what they're talking about. But it, it's... Uh, Oratory is an important thing, and I'm not trying to belittle it. Rhetoric is good, but it has to be the truth if it's going to have any kind of power. Now, there's a guy named Lucian, Lucian, I believe, who says this. Lucian contrasts the sublime words and dignified appearance of truly great teachers with the filthy clothes and unkempt appearance of the craftsman who does not pursue eloquence or learning but who clutches his tools, bent over his work, altogether demeaned. Philo, that was a Jewish, Hellenistic Jewish writer, reports that the sophists in Alexandria were, quote, men of mark and wealth, holding leading positions, praised on all hands, recipients of honors, portly, healthy, robust, reveling in luxurious and riotous living, knowing nothing of labor, conversant with pleasures, which carry the sweets of life to the all-welcoming soul by every channel of sense. Unquote. That's what the sophists were like, according to Philo, the Jewish, Hellenistic Jewish writer. So they were looking at Paul. Here we're in verse 10, and they see a person who could be compared unfavorably with the sort of speakers that they would regularly hear coming through Corinth. Well, Alice, would you, you, oh, (laughs) okay, I'll just ask one of you to do this. Exodus 4.10, and Joanne, Jeremiah 1.6, and Larry, 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 4, and um, Doug, Galatians 4.13 and 14. Galatians 4.13 and 14. Okay, when you get it, Exodus 4 and verse 10. Then Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. So Moses had the same problem Paul did, according to Moses. Yeah, Moses begged out of his calling because he, said he wanted to, but he, God wouldn't let him out of it. He said, I'm, I'm not eloquent, never have been, never will be. Um, I think Moses had kind of a... Big impact, wouldn't you say? <laughs> the basic founder of Western civilization, in my opinion. He gets slighted in the Western civ books. Because if you look at the ideas that are valued in Western civilization through the centuries or through the millennia, you find them in the book of Deuteronomy. For example, the king who doesn't oppress people and who has to read the law and be submitted to law. Deuteronomy 17. 
So there's something that we value in Western civilization, restraint on the power of leaders already articulated by Moses. So there's the founder of Western civilization. Okay, um, Jeremiah 1.6. Then I said, Alas, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak because I'm a youth. <laughs> so Jeremiah, so Moses was called. He said, No, I can't speak very well. Jeremiah's called. He said, No, Lord, I'm a youth. I don't know how to speak. Jeremiah ended up not having a very big audience. They didn't like him. But his, he wrote a book of the Bible. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 4. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Yep. And the power that he talked about was the power of the cross to save lost sinners. Amen. The message, the power is in the message, not the messenger, and or even the media. I met a guy 30 some years ago, was from Africa, and this was in the 70s when I met him, and he was motivated to try to get printing, because where he came from, it was a precious thing to have anything to read, and he said he was walking along the road muddy dirt road, and he saw a piece of paper laying in, in the road. And he cleaned it off because it was something to read. And he cleaned it off. And he picked it up and read it, and it was a gospel track. And the Lord used it to convert him. <laughs> so if you can get saved out of a little piece of dirty paper laying in the road, God can work his message through a lot of different means. <laughs> and so then eventually he came to raise some money to get a printing press so he could make gospel tracts to give to the rest of the people that he knew. Okay, um, Galatians 4, 13 and 14, Doug. But you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe. But you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Yeah, so he was received even though he had the problem physically as a messenger of God because he had the message of Jesus Christ. What did Paul quote in Romans 10? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So we have that privilege. Let's go to verse 11. Let, it, let such a person, now this, the person here, either literally a person or probably a personification of his critics in general, let such a person reckon, it says considered in American Standard, this, that what we are in word by letters when absent such persons, we are also indeed when present. They think he's a better letter writer. But he, denies, but he denies this. He's the same person. He has the same message. And what he writes and what he preaches exist as one. And they should know this. So he talks about in word, lagos, and in deed, ergon, work. In word and in deed. They're all the same. So Paul has written authoritative letters to the church, and they are still binding on us to this very day. Now let's go to verse 12 and kind of get to opening up. This is a very, very important verse, and there's a lot of material in this verse, okay? A lot. Here's what he says. For we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves, but when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. Um, now, as we said a little bit earlier, for Paul, the existence of the Corinthian church is his letter of commendation. Where did he see that? Is that in three, 2 Corinthians 3.1? Do you want to look for that, Robert? 
I'm just alluding to it. I don't have the reference in front of me. I think it's 3-1. Okay, would you read that, Robert? Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need as some letters of commendation to you or from you? Verse 2, you are our letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Okay. So rather than coming with a letter of commendation from a philosopher or some noteworthy socialite in town, his letter was the existence of the Corinthian church. And what his claim was is that I came to you, I preached the gospel, God is the one who saved you. We read that a little earlier. Paulus watered, God gave you growth, therefore you exist. You exist in your very existence is all the letter of commendation I need. Because it was God using the message of the cross to bring the church into existence. That's how God works. Uh, uh, Ryan had a, a very good sermon not so long ago on 1 Corinthians 1 where he talked about how preaching the gospel is how you find out who the called are. Okay? Remember... Paul, one incident in Acts, he was told, I think it was Corinth, he said to stay there because I have many people. Didn't the Lord say I have many people in this city? Remember that? They weren't yet saved, but the Lord knows who are his. So all Paul needed to know was, he didn't know who they were, but he knew they were in that city. So he stayed in the city and he preached the gospel to everybody. And the ones that the Lord had in that city became evidently the Lord's when they believed the gospel. And that's who the called are. Now, the ones who hear that and respond are the called out ones. The called out ones are the church, the ecclesia. The called out ones are called together by the Holy Spirit into one body. They're baptized by the Spirit into one body, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and that's the church. And we should never lose sight of the biblical definition of the church. And if we create an assembly. Granted, the word ecclesia in the Greek, depending on the context, can just mean an assembly. It could be a city council meeting. It could be a governor saying, okay, I'm calling people to come to this meeting, this assembly. But it takes on a technical meaning in the New Testament to mean the church called together by God, by the gospel, and unified as one body, by the Holy Spirit. That's what the church is. So, as I, I don't want to wear out this topic, but frankly, that's why the whole church growth movement is so ridiculous. It's frankly, it's absurd. It's absurd. The church growth movement says, let's just redefine the church and have the church be an assembly of the community in general. Okay? And so we assemble the community by getting them what they want. And then, hopefully, some of them will become converted. But that's just not the biblical pattern. The biblical pattern is you preach the gospel to everybody by whatever means you can, and the ones that are called are the ones that become the church. All right? You know, it's really not that hard to understand. That's what I don't get. It is so hard to get this through anybody's head, and it's not even hard. Literally, I I mean, I wrote a whole book about the thing, uh, and... I've got reports from dozens and dozens and dozens of people who said, well, I went and gave my book to your pastor, and he said, I don't like it. Well, I'm not going to read that. Well, you shouldn't. And one pastor criticized me for even telling the people about this because it made them dissatisfied with him. <laughs> but, you know, what would be more gratifying is if somebody would just write a, a defense of their definition of the church being just a general assembly of whoever's around the city. Defend that biblically. I mean, have some gumption and defend your own thing from Scripture. Well, they can't, so that's why they won't even engage in a discussion. I don't think it's any other way to see it. Now, one of the things that cannot be in the church is a personality cult. Okay? Or, well, should not be... Morally, yeah, I, I use cannot in a non-literal sense. It can happen, but it should not happen. The Corinthians were seemingly drawn like a magnet to that problem. I'm a Paul, I'm a Paulos, I like this preacher, I like that preacher, I like this person, I don't like that person. What is incumbent upon us 
is to determine whether or not there are signs of regeneration in, in somebody's life. Okay? And if there are signs of regeneration, then God added that person to the church, right? And if there are signs, what do I mean by signs of regeneration? Well, let me tell you several. Somebody loves to hear the truth of the gospel because it offends everybody else. And so if they come and sit under the gospel and they love to hear it, that's a sign of regeneration. If somebody loves the truth, that's a sign of regeneration. If somebody is evident that they want God to continually change their life, they don't have to come into the church uh, perfected the moment they're regenerated, but there should be signs of sanctification is happening and that they're wanting to be more like Jesus. Those are signs of regeneration. Now, I would say that if signs of regeneration exist, then we know that such a person has been added to the church. And if such a person has been added to the church, that person is as important to the church as anybody in the entire assembly. You can't make a pyramid church. You can't label people based on, well, this is, this is a really important one and this is not so important. All right, let me, let me just read this. In fact, you're supposed to go to the other. Now, these Corinthians were doing this all wrong, and that's why they're comparing themselves with one another, comparing Paul with somebody else, choosing this one, that one, the other one, uh, checking out who has the better gifts. And so Paul had corrected that in his first epistle, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. All right? For even as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though there are many, are one body, so also is Christ. Verse 12, verse 13, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one Spirit. For the body is not one member but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body, it's not for that reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I'm not part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. For if the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? So we need everybody. Now, uh, down to verse 21. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or again, the head to the feet. All of this is just an analogy, by the way, from the human body. I have no need of you. On the contrary, it's much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor, and our unseemly members come to have more abundant seemliness. And so... Paul is saying, if you're going to do anything to make distinctions, give more honor to the person who doesn't seem so important. Is that what he's saying? I think so. Okay, so the, the, the body of Christ is one. And we have to start with that understanding. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't ministries. Paul talks about it in Corinthians. There are elders and so on. But th- those are functions, not Status symbols. Okay? There's just different functions. Yes? There's a recent movement uh, that goes on where now everybody's supposed to, perhaps this is the wrong word, but glorify their pastor. And we elevate the pastor and we give them all this respect and honor and everything else, almost to the point where you can't contradict the pastor. And I'm just wondering uh, what your view on that is. Yeah, well, I'm strictly against it. And um, I think you should treat elders that rule well with honor, because it tells us to, but not with glorification or not uh, a status consciousness. We should treat one another with honor. And what I love to honor is somebody who loves the truth and who wants to learn the Bible and people who want to go out and share the gospel. And that's very honorable, but we don't want to create. I mean, what do you th- well, look at the Catholic Church? Can you imagine having a scarlet robe and a pointy hat and walking down the street with people giving you adulation? Don't you think it grieves God? Yeah. Well, it says honor your leaders in the Lord, and there's a qualification. When it comes to civil government, we honor people because God's put them in control of civil government, mm-hmm. and that's the way it is. They're the authorities. But when it comes to the scriptures in church, 
the message is what determines whether we give somebody honor or not, because if they're preaching a heretical message with all eloquence that we need, we should say, no, this is wrong, and, yeah. and either leave or confront them. Yeah, right. It's dishonorable to take the position of elder and not proclaim the gospel truly. A false message is always dishonorable. But I'm not teaching disrespect for church authorities, but warning against comparing one against the other. Okay? I mean, that sort of attitude you find all the way through the Bible. It always causes problems. But remember Saul and David? They, they come back from the battle, and, and they were singing. What were they singing? Yeah, yeah. Saul slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul wants honor. He's angry. I'm not going to put up with that. I'm going to kill David. I can't, I can't have this guy being uh, used by the Lord. And so it, here's, a, here's a little principle, okay? Because solve a lot of problems in churches over the years. Here's something we all need to know. If God blesses somebody else, he doesn't take it out of your account. <laughs> it's not like there's this blessing account and it went over there and it was taken away from me. Uh, and so we need to rejoice with those who rejoice. And if the Lord is using someone or blessing somebody else, that's not a threat. It's not a threat. Uh, I have seen church leaders who are threatened by somebody else's talent. They're worried that the, the, the other person is going to have more talent. And uh, it's, it's, you shouldn't think that way. Uh, I love to see talent in somebody else. Okay, try. I hope I can get my train of thought back here. Um, well, you know, the Bible talks about given our elders, they're worthy of double honor. And I think it's referring, you know, we're obviously referring to true elders. What's a true elder? Um, to be an elder in a church, you mm-hmm. meet certain qualifications. Mm-hmm. And that uh, would indicate that you're mature, that you know the word, you're able to teach. So you're not just uh, giving honor to, like uh, what Al was saying, to someone because of status, someone high up in the church that uh, has a position. Uh, I think it has more to yeah. do with uh, their maturity and they're able yeah. to teach. That's a good way. That, that kind of what you said there helps clarify my thoughts. The position in and of itself shouldn't be the thing that's honored. But the person's being qualified according to the Scripture. All right. So it says, let the elders who rule well be worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in word or doctrine. So I would see giving honor to someone who labors in word or doctrine because they are meeting the qualifications and doing so very well. But to say, I'm the pastor, you honor me, even if I don't even have time to go get a sermon ready on Sunday, so I borrow one out of Reader's Digest. My, my folks had such a pastor one time. There's this, they got this pastor. They were in a little town, and in the Methodist church, they move them around. Okay? And so they're such really nice people in this little town. And they got this pastor who was just like troubled. He'd, he'd, he was, he'd left a scandal and divorced, and there was uh, rumors about him from the other place. Then he was lazy. And, and somebody was one time he had a fairly good sermon, and somebody said, you know, I think I... I think I recognize it. Where's that from? Oh, it was an article out of Decision Magazine. He just, he didn't, he just gave that as his sermon. So my dad went to the district superintendent and said, man, this guy has got all kinds of trouble. What's, why did you send him to our church? And, and, the, and the guy says, well, you're, you've got such a nice church, we thought you could straighten him out. <laughs> well, thanks a lot. <laughs> okay, that's not, that's not being honorable. Okay, that's not, that's not honorable. So, Let's go back to our passage here. It says, For we are not bold, literally daring, daring. And there's some sarcasm here. Paul is, here's what he's saying. I'm not daring enough to jump into that fray that you guys have going on there. I'm not getting into this. I'm not jumping into this personality contest. I'm not jumping into this comparison thing, this measuring yourselves by yourself and who's a Paul and who's a Paulus. I'm not daring enough to even get into that. And so that's his sarcasm here, because they commend themselves. There's an inclusio. An inclusio is where you take a concept and you begin with it and then end with it, and it brackets your 
thought. That's an inclusio. So verse 12 says this, we are not bold to class and compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. And the inclusio ends at verse 18, where it says this, For it is not he who commends himself that is approved, but he whom the Lord commends. That's how, that's where this is all going. So if it takes us a while to get there, keep in mind that's where we're going. It's not the one who commends himself, it's whom the Lord commends. Self-commendation is an art. In fact, you can hire people to help you do that. Yeah, you can. They're called publicity tractors or whatever. But this is the same concept. He who commends himself isn't what's approved, but you God approves is that Mishta thing you talked about last yes. week. Yes. Because the guy that goes in and approves himself is the guy that's in trouble, and the guy that goes in thinking he's not approved is the one. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. That uh, good point. The book of Esther would just be classic case of that. Haman, Haman thinks, well, who could the king want to honor besides me? <laughs> of course it's me. And so he thinks of the greatest honor he can imagine. Oh, the royal chariot and do this and do all this glorious stuff. And that's what the king should do to the one that he should honor. And the king says, great, go do so to Mordecai the Jew. Haman was on the wrong side of it. It turns out the one approved is the humble one, the one who serves. Mordecai would just serve. He he never asked for any honor. He just was willing to serve. And Mordecai was honored. Okay, so self-commendation is not a good idea. Um, Especially if it involves... I'm not saying a person can't have a resume. Um, you know, somebody has wanting to write a book or whatever, and they say, well, I, my book is on whatever it's on, and I have a Ph.D. in Biblical Greek, so that's my qualification to write on this topic. I'm not saying that's sin. That's just facts to help people know what they're getting. But when we start com- negatively comparing others to our own self, in fact, Reverend Snow, one of my teachers at Bible College, who was the dispenser of aphorisms, he had a lot of aphorisms that he would tell the young men there studying to go into ministry to keep them out of trouble. And he says, now you guys, listen to me. When you get into the ministry... Don't ever use everybody else as a dark background to show off your own would-be brilliance. Okay, Reverend Snow, okay. (laughs) He'd warn about such things. And then he had stories about people that did stupid things when they were in the ministry that hurt churches just to try to warn us not to be like that. This isn't isn't here. The, the, The pulpit doesn't exist to enhance the status of somebody in the eyes of men. They measure themselves by themselves. Now, this would be like the pagan philosophers. Now, remind me to start here next week. I want to quote some of the very interesting material from the world that they lived in, what they were saying about themselves and about one another, that will give you an idea of what Paul was warning against. See you upstairs at 1030. Thanks.